But the reason I think this Sunday really matters, and I want to encourage you this afternoon if you're feeling a bit sort of, I don't know, uh, it's a funny time of year and anticipating what's going to happen next Sunday when it's Christmas and all that sort of stuff. Let me encourage you to, to see this Sunday as a real moment of preparation, a moment of preparation for celebrating Christmas. Because things are going to kick off right this week. It's all going to get manic and there's going to be all sorts of things going on. And, and despite our best intentions, sometimes we just lose any space to do anything. And so here is some space today, a slightly different sort of a Sunday, slightly quieter Sunday, a chance for us just to engage together with what we're really celebrating. And so that's what I want us to talk about. And we're going to take one verse, um, one sentence from the Bible, from John chapter 20. And this is going to be a sort of bonus sermon on John's gospel, um, because we'd we'd sort of finished John, but we're back. (laughs) Um, Here it is again. And so we're going to take this verse and use this to to try and just look back at some of the things we've learned in John's gospel. If you haven't been around, that's fine. Um, You'll you'll pick up stuff as we go. Um, But I hope this afternoon that God, by his spirit, will encourage us and challenge us and remind us of the good things that he has for us. Um, So why don't we pray? Let's pray. Let's take a moment. Why not just in the quietness of your hearts now, whatever things are running around your head, just ask in the quietness now, that God might help you and meet with you. If you don't know him, if, you, if you're here but you don't know God, why not say into the quietness, God, if you're there, please would you speak to me? If you do know him and he feels a long way away, why don't you say, God, if you're listening, please speak to me this afternoon. Why not ask him to be at work? Take a moment to do that and then I'll lead us in prayer. Father, we pray that in all the distractions and all the busyness and all the kind of the stress and the excitement of this time of year, we pray, please, that you would give us in these moments some space just to breathe and to worship and to listen and to be reminded and to be challenged. Father, please, would you pour out your spirit and speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. We're going to look at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. You know, sometimes um, people say you can't trust the Gospels, right? Because they were written by people who, they sort of had an agenda, didn't they? They weren't writing proper history. You know, if you want to listen to true history, you've got to listen to people who have no agenda, who are neutral. They're the ones you want to listen to. You don't want to listen to someone who's got kind of an agenda behind what they're writing. You often hear that sort of thing. Here's the problem. No one has ever written history from a neutral point of view. It's impossible to do. Everybody has a perspective. Everybody has a message. Everybody has an agenda. Um, I went to the theater yesterday afternoon. Um, At the very last minute, um, some tickets came available. and My wife and I were like, yeah, let's go. And we went to see um, something called Best of Enemies. And it's a it was fascinating, but it's reflecting back on a historical event from 1968. But it definitely had an agenda, right? It was preaching a message. It was actually very, very preachy. At one point, one of the characters turned to the audience and said, you know this, but you won't do anything about it, will you? <laughs> it was very preachy. 
And the reality is that all history kind of comes from a perspective. History tends to be written by the winners, right? Those who won. So it's a myth to imagine that you can find any history that's not got an agenda. Here's the thing I love about John. John is just completely blatant. He says, yes, I've got an agenda. I have totally got an agenda. And he's not trying to hide it. He's not trying to say, oh, no, I'm just a neutral observer. Let me present something to you. He says, no, Ab, this is my agenda. Listen to it. Here it is. John chapter 20, verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I'm writing this not for your amusement, not for your interest, not out of historical um, reminiscence. I'm writing this so that you will believe that Jesus is the Son of God and find life in him. So you've got to hand it to John. Whatever you make of his history, he's not hiding his purpose. He's very clear. This is why I wrote. And I want to take this to these two sentences and just explore them together and say, well, how's he done that in his book? What's he shown us? And I want you to imagine that you were platting. I don't know when the last time was you did some platting. Probably not very regularly. Some of you probably do it more often than others. But if you, you know platting, right? Yes, okay. Maybe you're making bread. Making bread dough. You've got some nice bread dough. You make some cheese. No? Okay. <laughs> Look, right? You've got three strands, and those three strands are woven together. That's the point. That was it. John's gospel, John's gospel is three strands. If you ask what is the main theme of John's gospel, it's nearly impossible to say because there are three of them, and they're all woven together. The three strands that make up John's gospel are firstly the strand that we might call the signs. The second strand that makes up John's gospel is what we might call believe. And the third strand is life. Those are John's three main themes. And if you pick up a book on John's gospel that's trying to summarize it, it will pick one of those. Some people will call their book believe. Some people call that book life. And some people get the book signs. And they're all right because all three of those things, there isn't one that is more important than the other. So let's see how that works. And I'm going to try and do some platting for you. I'll try and weave some of the stories of John's gospel to show you what I'm talking about. Let's take that first one then, signs. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written. So John describes what he's writing as signs. Now, of course, a sign, we we get how signs work. We all kind of live with signs all around us. A sign points somewhere. It is telling you something important and it points to it. And that's what John is doing in his gospel. He is recording specific things that point to one inescapable reality, that Jesus is glorious. 
These signs point to his glory. They point to Jesus being the Messiah, the Son of God. Okay, this is, this is how the book works, all right? In the first half, there are seven signs that all have been carefully selected. Remember, Jesus did tons of miracles. We don't know how many. Perhaps he did 40 miracles a day. I don't know. Perhaps he did seven miracles an hour. I don't know how many miracles Jesus did, but he must have done tons and tons. But John picks only seven of them and says, I want to pick these because they will teach you specific things that I want you to see. I want you to see his glory. And in particular, they will help you to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Not just a miracle worker. John is not just writing a book about someone who did great things. You know, you could, you could read a book about Christopher Columbus. And you could find out lots of interesting things about the amazing achievements of Christopher Columbus. And you could come away and say, wow, Christopher Columbus, what a guy. But John doesn't want you to leave this gospel, his book saying, Jesus, what a guy. He wants you to leave seeing what the signs are telling you. What does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, the Messiah is the one that God had promised and the one that you pin your hope on. You see, before Jesus came in what's the first part of the Bible, the bit we call the Old Testament, God promised over and over again that someone was coming. And someone was coming who was going to do remarkable things. Right, you'll, have heard, you'll have heard this if you've been to any carol service over Christmas time. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. There's someone coming, a baby coming. This, that was 700 years before Jesus. A Messiah. One who will come. One who will take what is old and will make it new. Jesus' first sign. In John's gospel, is Jesus taking water and turning it into wine. Jesus revealing himself as the one, the Messiah, who had come to make things new. New wine. And that's followed in John's gospel. That sign is pointing you, there's going to be a new temple in John 2. There's going to be new birth. You're going to be born again in John chapter 3. There's going to be new worship in chapter 4. New, new. Here is the Messiah who makes things new. Look where the sign is pointing you. The sign is water turned into wine. Look where it's pointing you. The one who makes things new. In the second sign, Jesus heals a, 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 a man whose, whose son is sick. Jesus heals him from a distance. In the third sign, he heals a man who is paralyzed by a pool. And the second and third sign shows you that this Messiah is the one who is going to take what is hopeless and fill it with hope. Old made new, hopeless made hopeful. Here is the Messiah. This is what the Messiah was always going to do. The fourth sign, Jesus takes bread, two, five loaves and two fish, and he feeds 5,000 people. He feeds a vast crowd. The Messiah was the one who was going to come and provide for God's people, who was going to give them 
life bread. Give them what they needed. In a world where they were lacking, here was the one who was going to supply. He was going to take what was old and make it new. He was going to take what was hopeless and make it hopeful. He was going to take what was lacking and he was going to make it full. Do you see these signs are pointing you? He's picked them specifically. In the fifth sign, Jesus walks on water. Because here is the one who is not just a human Messiah, because a human Messiah can never do what we need him to do. Here is the one who is able to tread the waves. You heard of King Canute? Do you know King Canute? I know King Canute because I grew up in Southampton, and that's where King Canute was from. We're very proud of him. Don't know why. Because in King Canute uh, believed that he could, con- well, his... His courtiers said to him, King Canute, you're so powerful, you could tell the tides not to come in and it won't come in. And he said, don't be ridiculous. He said, no, you're so powerful, you could do that. So he said, that sounds like an excellent idea. So they carried his throne down to the beach. They sat him on the beach. There's a little plaque in Southampton that tells you where this happened. And King Canute stood, sat on his throne and demanded that the sea did not come in. Guess what happened? He got wet. Because no human being, no human king could ever control the sea, but this one does. You see, here is the one who is able to take what is chaotic and bring it into order. Because as Jesus walked the waves, he calmed the storm that was swirling all around. So he takes what's old and he makes it new. He takes what's hopeless and he fills it with hope. He takes what is lacking and he supplies and fills. He takes what is chaotic and he makes it ordered. In the sixth sign, he takes a blind man and he opens his eyes. Because this is what the Messiah was going to do. He was going to take those living in darkness and fill them with light. I am the light of the world, says Jesus. Here is the Messiah. Here is his glory shining over and over again. The signs are telling you. And if that isn't enough for you, then this seventh sign is the big one. Not the biggest, but the biggest yet. Because in the seventh sign, Jesus takes someone who is dead And he stands at his tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And Jesus has power even over death itself. That's the first half of John's gospel. Seven signs. Do you see his glory? Do you see his glory this afternoon? Now, I get that you may have questions around whether those things are true. If they are true, do you see that that would make Jesus the Messiah? (laughs) Do you see, that would make him unique. That would make him like no other human being who's ever lived. Do you see, that would make him son of God, from God, God himself. Only God can do that. That's the first half of John's gospel, the book of signs, the signs of glory pointing us to his glory. But that wasn't, that wasn't the big one. Because all the way through the first half, you get this thing, the hour's not yet come. There's a big one coming, the hour's not yet come. And then in chapter 12, Jesus says, now my time has come. And Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. I'm like a seed and I'm going to be planted in the ground and I'm going to die. And through my death, through my dying, I will bring life to millions and millions and millions. 
And all the way through the second half, you discover the hour of glory. First half, signs of glory. Second half, hour of glory. As Jesus prepares his disciples for that moment when he will leave. As he washes their feet in an act of supreme love. As he prepares them for that moment when he will leave. As he prays for them. And then as he goes to a cross to die for them, to fight for them, to love them. To die as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And then three days later, they go to the tomb and he's alive again. Because he's the Messiah, the Son of God. You can't kill him. Death can't keep its hold on him. Do you see his glory? And John says, Jesus did many other things. But these seven are recorded so that you might know, so that you might understand, so you've got what you need. These have been written down for you. John says, this is all you need to make up your mind about Jesus. I've given you what you need. John wrote this down for you. And so there are the signs, stunning Do you see the signs? Do you see his glory? I wonder which of those miracles, which of those seven really grips you? What is it that you most need today? As you look at your life, is it old needing to be made new? Are you hopeless? Do you need hope? Do you feel your lack? Do you feel your weakness? Do you feel that you're in chaos? Do you feel the darkness? Like you can't see what's right. You you, you don't know. Or perhaps does death feel very close? What, What is it this afternoon that you need? Because here is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, who through these signs says, I am the one you need. I am the Messiah. So that's what John's done. He's written these signs. Do you see that beautiful thread? I mean, what a bit of dough that is. Do you chew on that? But if that's all you see, it's not enough. Because here's the second, here's the second bit, <laughs> thread. And that is to believe. You see, as John writes these signs, he doesn't want you just to believe that Jesus existed. He doesn't want you to believe that Jesus did these things. He wants you to believe in him. From the very start of John's gospel, that has been his message. Believe. To all who believed in him. Of course, we talk about that a lot and we've seen that a lot in John's gospel. But what does it mean to believe in someone? Is that the same as believing in fairies? You sort of have this weird, "Mm, I think I believe in fairies. No, because you've got to remember that John is basing this on evidence. He's given you the signs. That was his first thread. He's not calling you to believe in the absence of evidence. We've got this stupid thing, right, where people go, oh, faith is about what you do when you've got no evidence. No, it's not. Faith is about looking at the evidence and making a decision, right? John isn't saying to you, oh, believe in Jesus. Why should I? He's given you the evidence. 
But he is pushing you to say, believe in him. So here are some examples of what it means to believe. Let me give you some language that John uses to fill out what it means to believe so that you this Christmas can say, do I believe in this Messiah, this Son of God? There's tons in John. I'm not going to do many, but here's a few. Look to him. To believe in Jesus means you look to him. You know that moment in a playground where a child falls over? Here they are, happily running around. They fall over, they scrape their knee. Suddenly they look. They, they, instinctively, they look to one person. The person who's with them, the person who's caring for them, their adult. Now we're all grown up, most of us. But we still all look somewhere. When you're in trouble, where do you instinctively look? Who do you look to? What is it? Where do your eyes, you know, you're happily going through life. Here we are having a happy, happy time. Then something goes wrong. Where do you look? Because Jesus says that he's the one you look to. And the problem is that for most of us, we look to a hundred other places. We look to a hundred other things. Because in our grown-upness, perhaps we sort of think Jesus is a bit of a fairy story. Um, let me tell you a story. And I, Simeon, I'm sorry, I haven't checked this with you. Do you mind if I... You'll be all right. Um, this is really bad. That's really bad. You should never do this, really. But it, it, it's a really helpful story. <laughs> there was a time when one of my children, I won't tell you which one, um, was... Uh, he was, he was afraid of coming home from school in the dark. He didn't, he didn't want to come home from school in the dark. And so he prayed at breakfast, God, please don't let it be dark when I come home from school today. And I remember sitting there thinking, well, I know what time you're coming home from school today, and I know what time it goes dark. This is a bad prayer. And as a parent, you have this kind of crisis of, this is going to destroy his faith, because this is awful, because it's, it's, there's no way this can happen. He was sent home from school at lunchtime. They finished the day early. And as he came home, I was like, you are such a rub- you're so rubbish. <laughs> now, God doesn't always promise to answer like that, but there's that, that faith that says, I look to you and I ask you for help. God, I need this. I heard someone else say, um, you know, someone once said, oh, you should, never, you should never pray to find a parking space. That's a trivial thing. Don't, don't pray about that. Pray about big things. And this little old lady went, how else would I find a parking space? (laughs) Isn't that great? Just an instinctive, you look. Where do you look when you're in trouble? When When you feel desperate, where do you look? Who do you cry to you? And and I find actually, when I look at my own heart, I I'm very slow to cry to God. And here is Jesus, and he said he was going to be lifted up on a cross so that you could look to him when you were in trouble. Now, like I said, it's not that he promises that he will always fix everything, that he will always send you home from school early. But he does promise to be your Messiah. He does promise to be the one who is with you and will walk with you and will carry you and will give you the strength that you need for whatever it is you're facing. Look to him. 
That's what it means to believe. I, I, don't, I, I don't have the resources. God, please help me. That's faith. Please help me. I feel so guilty. I feel so ashamed of the things I've done. Jesus, please help me. I need someone to forgive me. Jesus, please help me. That's belief. It's simple. It's that simple. You simply look to him. And he restores you. He forgives you. He welcomes you. He makes you, God's ch- he makes you into God's child. Um, another image of what it means to, to believe is to worship. To worship him. In John 9, when Jesus heals the blind man, um, there's this great little phrase where this, there's this man who's blind. Jesus opens his eyes. But because he was blind when Jesus opened it, well, right, he's blind. Okay, imagine, imagine Matt was the man. He's blind. So he comes to Jesus. Uh, Jesus sees him and says, I'm, I'm going to make you well. Go to a pool over there and, wash, uh, and make some mud and wash it off and then you, you'll be healed. All right? The trouble is that Matt hasn't seen Jesus, doesn't know what he looks like, because he was blind when he had that conversation. So off he goes, he gets healed. Then he has this big kind of argument with the religious leaders. And then later on, Jesus finds him again and says, do you believe in, in the Messiah? And, and the man says, well, I don't know who he is. If I, believe, if I knew who he was, I'd believe in him. <laughs> and Jesus says, well, I'm talking to you. And then, it's, then the man says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Isn't that interesting? So for, for John, when he talks about believing, he's not talking about some, you know, abstract kind of, do you believe? Yes, I believe. He's not talking about, do you mentally assent to some truths? He's saying, is Jesus the object of your worship? Because you have seen him to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who you look to, the one who is able to take your darkness and make it light, your chaos and make it order, your death and make it life that you look to him you worship or another image just a beautiful image which I'm just trying to give you ideas that we've seen as we've gone through is that you love him so in John chapter 12 there's this moment where Jesus he, he, he's preparing to go to die on a cross and Mary comes and she she pours perfume on his feet and she washes his feet and she anoints him and she anoints him with this great love and wipes his feet with her hair and all the people there are going oh this is awful what a waste what a waste what a waste but she just says I love him I love him she loves him because she is the sister of Lazarus and Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead And so she doesn't go, oh, Jesus, cheers. Thanks very much for raising my brother. She goes, Jesus, I love you. And she pours this perfume on him because she so loves him. That's what it means to believe. You look to him. You worship him. You love him. You embrace him. You say, Jesus, I need you. You know, one of the... um, One of the big sins, no, in fact, actually, scrap that. The biggest sin that you find in the Bible, the biggest thing people do wrong is what is called unbelief. When you refuse to believe. That 
is the heart of our problem. Unbelief is when we refuse to look to God and instead we look to ourselves. It's when we refuse to worship God and we worship something other than God. We make something other than God the center of our life. Unbelief is when we refuse to love God and instead we love stuff, the stuff that God made, but don't love him. When we place ourselves at the center. A little while ago, I saw this great little story about a guy, um, an older guy who went on a train journey all the way through Europe. And he was very excited about that because he wanted to see all of Europe. And what he thought he'd do is he'd video it as he went. He thought he'd document it. So he took this video and he had hours and hours and hours of video out the window of the train all the way along, all the way, all the way. And then when he got home, he watched his video. Can you guess what he'd done? He had it on selfie mode. So all he got was himself, all the way. So he had hours and hours of his reaction to the beautiful scenery, but not the beautiful scenery. Now that was an innocent, slightly naive mistake. But it's actually an incredible picture of what we do. We live in this world... And we place ourselves at the center. And rather than look to God, we often look within. We think we've got the answers within. We think we can fix it ourselves. But you are not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. You're not the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. You're not the one who can take darkness and make it light. You can't do that. Jesus can. You're not the one who can take what is old and make it new. Jesus can. And in fact, the very reason that Jesus had to go and die on a cross was because of our unbelief. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he died so that all who look to him might be saved. You see, to have treated God like that, to have been in unbelief against God... God would be quite within his rights. And to be honest, it would be perfectly fair for God to say, well, if you won't believe in me, then you are on your own. I will place you in a place of condemnation and punishment. It would have been quite, God would have been quite within his rights. But instead he said, but I love you. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, whoever looks, Whoever worships, whoever loves, whoever turns, whoever embraces, whoever takes hold of, whoever clings to, whoever runs to, Jesus doesn't perish like they deserve, but has, that brings us to our third threat, everlasting life. What is it that Jesus, this Messiah, this Son of God, displayed in his signs, that you might believe in him, what is it that believing in him produces? Life. That you may have life in his name. And here's the third great theme of John's gospel. Life, life, life. It's everywhere. Perhaps most famously, Jesus says, In John chapter 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. You see, I think most of us in this room, if you've been asked on your way in, are you alive? Most of us would have gone, 
yeah, yeah, I'm alive. Can't say much more, but I'm, I'm alive as I walk in this room. And we may say, I've got life. Why do I need life? The life that Jesus is talking about is not the life that you have. You see, what you have is little L life. What Jesus is talking about is big L life. You see, Jesus is coming into this world as God himself. God who is life. Jesus said, I am the life. Jesus doesn't just say, I have life. You see, you may say, yeah, I've got life. But very few of you have walked in and gone, I am life. I am the very definition of life itself. But that is what Jesus said. John starts his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In him was life. And that life was the light of all man. Jesus has a quality and a reality of life within him that you don't have, and neither do I. And that is why Jesus is the one who's able to take what's old and make it new, what is hopeless and make it hopeful, what is lacking and make it full, what is chaotic and make it ordered, what is dark and make it light, and what is death and make it life. Why can he do that? Because he is life. Because Jesus is the Son of God, the Father and the Son in beautiful relationship. That is life. And Jesus came so that you could have that life. Not this life. (laughs) That life. A life, a quality of life, a reality of life that at the moment we don't experience without him. That he comes and says, I want to give you life. You might get some presents in the next few days, but you will not get a better gift than this. Life. And what is life? Well, life is to know the God who made you. In John 17, when Jesus prays for his disciples, as he's about to go to the cross... Listen to what he says, John 17. He says, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all peoples that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life that they know you, Father, And that they know me, the one you've sent. Here's the life Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about kind of having a nice time here. He's not talking about heaven when you die either at this point. Oh yes, one day I'll get eternal life. No, you've got it now if you know him. Because the life he's talking about is you getting caught up into this relationship of the father and the son. That's life. Life in God, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect life. And then Jesus comes and he says, you want that? You want to get caught up into that beautiful life that you might know the Father and that you might know the Son? That's life. Life is to be known and loved by God. 
Life is to be welcomed and embraced by God. Life is to be able to call God your father. Life is to know the one who made you. That's life. And it's life you begin to enjoy now. But it's a gift. It's a gift. He gives it to you. He gives it to you when you believe. This is what John desperately wants you to know. This is why he wrote his gospel. You have life in his name. It's a gift that is given to you in the name of Jesus. It would be the weirdest thing on Christmas Day if you receive a present. That wouldn't be weird. It would be the weirdest thing if on Christmas Day and you got out your wallet or your purse and you said, how much do I owe you? What a random thing. Because Jesus doesn't reward you. He gives you what you don't deserve. I remember many years ago, it was the middle of summer, I was walking behind this lady and um, she had a little boy with her. And the little boy was kicking off. He was being, ah, oh, shouty, shouty, shouty. And she turned to him and said, if you don't behave, Father Christmas won't bring you a PlayStation. And I'm thinking to myself, it's the middle of summer. I mean, that's, you've gone early. You've gone really early on your Christmas threat. You've got to save that. I mean, where'd you go from that? Bringing out Father Christmas in summer. I mean, that's a killer. Desperate. But that's how Father Christmas works, right? He rewards those who've been good. And so many people think that Jesus works the same way, that you've got to be good, and if you're good enough, he'll give you eternal life. No. He gives you eternal life despite what you've done. That's why he came. And that's why John desperately wants you to know this life is a free gift that you cannot buy. You cannot get it in your name. You see, if life is in my name, The trouble is that my bank account of goodness is just too low to get life. I need to go in his name. I need to go in the bank account that's got his name on it and draw out life from him. And so look, let's put all these three threads together. This is what John's gospel is all about. Here is the one. Here are the signs that you need so that you can know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Glorious, majestic. And those signs demand a response from you, which is to believe, to look to him, to love him, to worship him, to run to him. And as you do that, you find life. Life in all its fullness. Life like you've never experienced before. So this Christmas, will we run to this Messiah, this Son of God? Will we cry to him? And will we find life in his name? There are lots of other things that will compete for this definition of life over Christmas. His life and his life, his life, his life. None of them can offer what Jesus has given you. So don't despise it this Christmas. And if you don't yet know him, why not believe this afternoon? 
Believe in him. Look to him. Ask him for life. Say sorry for the ways that you've acted and trust this Messiah who died for you, rose again. And if you do believe in him, perhaps life has lost its shine. Perhaps you're not as excited about that life that he gives. Perhaps you found it all a little bit mundane, to be honest. You don't find yourself excited about Jesus. This Christmas, I wonder if you will ask him to shine brightly into your darkness. Say, Jesus, I I don't love you like I should. I don't love you. I don't worship you as much as I'd long to. Please, this Christmas, let worship flow. I want to believe in you. So we're going to take some time to respond. This is why I wanted to have a bit more time to sing. Um, We're going to sing um, a couple of songs. We're going to share communion together um, as we respond to this. But let's use these moments to prepare ourselves for Christmas. You've got the signs. Believe the signs and have life in his name. Let me lead us in prayer. Then we're going to sing. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that we have a Messiah. Thank you that we have the Son of God who has been given. Thank you that we can see his glory in the signs that you've given. Lord, some of us this afternoon really feel hopeless. Some of us feel in darkness. Some of us feel in chaos. Some of us feel like we're lacking what we need. Some of us feel we need the newness that only Jesus can bring. We pray this afternoon that we believe that Jesus is the one who by his death and resurrection has paid for our unbelief and is able to give us life and light. Help us to trust him, to believe in him, in his name. Amen.